From inside the warehouse at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, it is the Mass and All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano, Bobby Blanco here with you. Of course, the Mass and All Access Podcast is brought to you by Marymount University. Visit MarymountSaints.com to learn more about our student athletes and programs today. It is a chilly day, but cloudless uh, here in in Baltimore. The chilly is not what uh, we enjoyed in San Diego, but the cloudless part is beautiful days out there for the most part. I think it was kind of chilly for San Diego. Also for San Diego, yeah, yeah for yeah. San Diego, it was only in the sixties in San Diego. Get your ish yeah, 60, together. sixty-five. Southern California. They had uh, they had heat lamps at yeah. outside restaurants in the streets. <laughs> yeah. The audacity! The audacity! Uh, you can tell that we're deep into the off season when we start every podcast by talking about the weather. This <laughs> and, is true, and how it's how it is outside. This is um, true, but yeah, it's much nicer out than it was. On Saturday for the winter warm-up, those poor fans, I mean, bravo to yeah. everyone who showed up because it was flat-out disgusting It was outside. gross. It was rainy and cold, um, but the show must go on. Yeah. Brandon, uh, Paul, you were there. Brandon High, Michael Isaac, my dad, I had to, uh, with Rob Long on the stage and with a, a plethora of fans who came out to hear what they had yeah. to say. I called it droves on Twitter because I, I was short on synonyms and it had been a long week. And I got roasted for calling it droves. Look, I think I think I was taking it in context. The fact that the Orioles obviously lost 100 games last year. The fact that this was a December event that was outdoors, mm-hmm. in the rain, mm-hmm. on a cold day, mm-hmm. on a Saturday. Um, it was pretty well attended. Yeah. Um, and it just goes to show, I mean, I, I just don't know of that many fan bases that would brave the weather for something like that after back-to-back 100 lost seasons. And go there, you know, just to enjoy the atmosphere just because they're fans. There was a fan there um, that flew in from Florida because she's such a, a big Orioles fan. I mean, there were, uh, you just got to see the, the full flavor of, of uh, Orioles fandom because, you know, they, they don't care what the weather is. They don't care uh, what time of year it is. They want to come out and support the team. And so that's, that's what, uh, that was my point, basically, yeah, before yeah, I got roasted. And, and I think the Orioles announced that they, had approximately a thousand people come through mm-hmm. throughout the day, which is impressive considering the, the um, it was a free event and and of course the weather and it being outside. Um, obviously, the highlight being the panel with uh, and being able to ask questions to the front office guys and the manager. Yep, um, which is pretty cool. It's a pretty cool event, and, and, and you know that's the risk you take when you do an outdoor event in the middle of December. Yep. you know the weather could be spotty and it's gonna you might have to suffer through it. Um, and then, you know, real fans will do that. And, and, you know, we shouldn't be surprised because you look back a couple of weeks ago, 
those same Orioles fans who are also probably Ravens fans packed M&T Bank Stadium when it was disgusting out to watch them play the 49ers. I mean, this is nothing new to this fan base. I mean, you know, you if you're a diehard Baltimore Orioles fan, you're probably used to the crappy weather around here. Exactly. So good for the Orioles fans who showed up. Um, that was uh, that was a nice event that they had, and there were some interesting questions. We found out that Mike Elias got his coat for hundred dollars at Uniqlo. Um, we found out was that uh, your question, Paul? That was uh, yeah, I really wanted to. I I it was not my question, but the person asked. It. I was like, oh, good question. Where did you get that, Mike? Uh, and we found out that Sigma Dell's favorite Christmas movie is Die Hard, um, which is really a cop out. Christmas so. movie. Uh, my favorite? No, no, no. Do you say Die Hard is Die Hard a Christmas? Movie? Oh, I've actually never seen Die Hard. I've never seen Die Hard. Oh, there we go. Yeah, but would you? I mean, I guess I, I guess that means we can't have a say in this debate. Yeah, I, if, I, without seeing the movie, I have stayed out of. But I know time. what the debate is because of it's course. not about Christmas. It just takes place during Christmas time. Right. Yeah, and and people bring up the fact that uh, what is it? Uh, it's not Miracle. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life came out in May that year mm-hmm. and they say well then it couldn't be a christmas movie well it's obviously a christmas movie yeah you know, come on um one of the originals yeah i'm trying to think of other christmas movies that don't come out during the christmas time and i are having trouble also when did that movie come out i mean who was even going to the theater for like two pennies at that point <laughs> could you even get popcorn in theaters back then like 1946 19 so it probably came out in may of 1946 and then like Three months later, you know, people finally got to but see it. But also, movie like, theaters back then were showing one movie at a time. Yeah, So, yeah. like, they probably showed it for a couple of weeks in May and then moved on. And then, the you know, the news finally broke. They're like, extra, extra, it's been yeah. in the theater for three months. We won the war. We won the war. Yeah, that was. That <laughs> was 1940. No, was it 45? Did they was, win the war? No, I, I, I want to say it was after 45. So, I think it was 46 or 47. I wanna, it was later in the... I think it's later than people... People usually go earlier in the yeah. 40s. I think it was technically later when they... I mean, we basically had one at that point, but I think it came down to, like, not history buff, but, like, the 47 to 46 area range um, where, like, the official surrender came. Right. And and the, and the U.S. And, of course, Germany surrendered first. Well, they tend to do that. And uh, we're moving on. Uh, we're not going to delve into any oh, more Oh, come history. on. Back-to-back World War champs. <laughs> Yikes. Please tell me you don't own a I don't. T-shirt I know many people that. who did. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's talk about what happened. Of course, we mentioned San Diego without mentioning the reason we were there, which was winter meetings, which, of course, took place in San Diego last week. Uh, one of the best winter meetings in recent memory, you, you, I think you could say maybe in the past, past decade or so, it's tough to think back to a winter meetings that had more juice than this one. Since I've been covering the winter meetings, by far the best. Yeah. Um, and that was before... Jason Worth signed with the Nationals. That was 2011. That was a big one. But my, my first one was in 2015. So, there, yeah, nothing else pops on my radar. I mean, the Adam Eaton trade, only because it was a local team, and it happened in D.C. Yeah. Um, Giancarlo, Giancarlo Stanton when we were in Orlando a couple years ago. But Last that, year, absolutely nothing. Yeah, no, um, absolutely nothing. Tanner for Tanner trade doesn't really qualify. And uh, for national breaking news. And an Andrew McCutcheon signing. That's that's about it. <clears throat> yeah. Was uh, the full extent of last year's winter meeting. So good to see, I think for baseball in general, that winter meetings actually had some juice this year. Yeah. Um, this offseason has had some juice. Yeah. This offseason has been flying by in terms of uh, moves uh, that teams have made. And, you know, we saw, of course, the big three Boris clients go off the board in back-to-back-to-back days at winter meetings, racking up $814 million over three contracts. It's going to be a happy holiday in the Boris household. Yeah. 
Do they Good Lord? Which household? Probably though. Uh, I would probably say they're in there. Does Boca he live Rotel. in Long? Oh, is it Boca? Or nah, I think he, I feel like he's one in Long Beach. In I Cali. wouldn't be surprised. So probably that one. Um, so great for now. baseball that that happened, and of course the Orioles before, right before winter meetings, and literally an hour after we recorded our last podcast. <laughs> Uh, made a trade. Ain't and that, that how it goes. Ain't that how it goes. And that was trading Dylan Bundy to the Angels for four prospects in return. Kyle Bradish, Kyle Brinovich, Isaac Matson, and Zach Peak. Those are the four right-handed pitchers that they got for Dylan Bundy. We haven't had a chance to talk about it now, so I do want to look back and, and touch on this. Now, the biggest in terms of the, the closest one to the major leagues of those four names that I just rattled off uh, is Isaac Matson. Uh, he was very good as a relief pitcher in the minors in 2019. Spent some time uh, starting at uh, high A, then double A, then triple A, um, and showed his worth 2.33 ERA um, in 73 and a third innings pitched. Really uh, showed some stuff. He's still only 24 at this point. Um, the Definitely the closest to a sure thing, especially for a bullpen that is desperate for. Um, any kind of guys who can eat up innings. I think Matt's there's a, a good chance Matson is making an impact on the major league team by midseason. I don't know about impact, but he'll be up here. And I think Rocco Bacolu has alluded to that too when the trade went down. He's obviously he's had the most experience. He's played in the higher ups of the minor league systems and he will make an appearance in Baltimore at some point, probably next season. Um, but yeah, um, it's good to get a almost quote-unquote major league ready arm in, in a trade for a you know a starter i mean bundy's a backline starter at this point in his career and probably he will be for the for the angels but he is a major established major league starter so it's good to get a if you're going to get a haul you know four guys big you know a large return for one person um you might as well get at least one guy that is close to the breaking through to the major leagues and and that's Matson. And, and we were lucky enough to get him on one of our shows in san diego for he facetime and chatted with you paul um uh, Matson all access in the winter meetings and you know he just seemed like and we talked about this too before he just seemed he was excited to come here because it's, it's a brand new opportunity for him um he, he's hope you know there there is an opportunity for him to break through into the major leagues in baltimore uh with the orioles next next summer um so that's exciting for him and he, he seems like a great kid great i call him a kid he's only a couple years younger than me great guy um just, and just excited so that that was encouraging to see not only did the Orioles get a, a large package in return for Bundy, but someone, one at least one guy who possibly could help in an area of need for this team in the bullpen um, next summer. Especially because a lot of the reports that we had heard, uh, especially leading up to that trade, was the Orioles are going to be seeking lower-level minor leaguers in return for the major leaguers that they could be dealing during the offseason. And, of course, within hours of one of those reports coming out, they went and got a AAA um, uh, relief pitcher, and of course, so he made only he appeared in only nine and a third innings at trip at Triple A. But uh, when I talked to Michael Elias at winter meetings, he said basically, if you show um, that you can stick in in Triple A, and you've already dipped your toe into that into that water, and you've shown that you you know started out out strong, you're absolutely a candidate to to be called up uh, at some point soon. So. Uh, that is a great sign. And then the other three guys that they got besides Matson, I think Michael Elias is in a unique position as a GM considering right before he took this job, about a year ago, he 
was basically in charge of the Astros draft. So he was the guy. He was, you know, he obviously has a scouting background, but he his main focus was drafting major league talent for the Houston Astros. So he looked at these guys. He probably had scouts at seeing these guys because they were all drafted within the past couple of years. So Kyle Brinovich was drafted in this past draft, which, of course, Michael Elias was a GM for, and we know that the draft was the biggest day or biggest couple days of the year for Michael Elias. So he surely knew about this guy and knew that this was an, uh, an eighth-round pick. Um, Zach Peake was another guy that was taken in this past 2019 draft. And then Kyle Bradish, who was taken in the 2018 first-year player draft, which he was, uh, Michael Elias was overseeing when he was in Houston. So he kind of has a little bit of an inside track on some of these guys that were drafted recently. And to me, I, I, I don't see it necessarily as, oh, well, these guys aren't top 30 guys in the system yet. More as these guys are just draft picks. These well, guys, it's like you're you're adding recent draft picks to your team. That's pretty much what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Aside from Matson, uh, and then like I said, like you said, these guys were probably probably on Michael Elias's board at some point, and and so he has a book on them. Uh, you mentioned they're not top third. Uh, Bradish was twenty first ranked prospect according to MLB Pipeline for the Angels. So he's a guy that already, even though he was just drafted two summers ago already breaking through into those ranks and making a name for himself in their system. Um, you know, I don't know how high Angel's overall farm is ranked in terms of all the, the, the prospects in all of Major League Baseball, but that's still impressive in and of itself. So it's not like you got, you know, one AAA arm who can possibly break through the Major Leagues and then just a bunch of basically college kids. You know, you got a, a legit prospect in, in Bradish who, who was ranked in, in by some... Uh, outlets um, in, in the angel system. So yeah, like you said, it's it's a good haul. Uh, young guys. I mean, this is just the path that the Michael Elias and the Orioles have been taking um, for the past year. Um, we saw it with the draft this past season and how they, and how they drafted. They're drafting young arms. They need to revamp this whole pitching depth throughout the whole minor league system. We've talked about at length in all our minor league shows about how there are a lot of guys who have already been here, have made some good strides, and are hopefully climbing the ranks of the minor league system um, in the Orioles and eventually breaking through to become um, come up here in Baltimore at some point. But, you know, Michael Elias has made it no secret this is the path to, to becoming good again. This is the path that they've chosen to re- do this rebuild. Young arms, young talent, um, because this pitching depth was not great when he first got here. And, of course, Dylan Bundy, for all of the expectations that were heaped at his feet since he was drafted with the fifth overall pick years ago, he had not lived up to them to this point. Now, he still has many years left, potentially, in the major leagues. He's still only he's tw- age 27 seasons coming up next year. Um, but he had underperformed. And and it was incredible that he was able to get to the point where he worked through all of the injuries, kind of similar to Hunter Harvey, that just yeah. the fact that he was able to stick in a major league rotation. And I think one of the reasons that the Angels were so interested in him weirdly enough, is the fact that he made 30 starts the past couple of years. Yeah. The, his, the fact that he was able to take the ball uh, once every five days, which is not something you would expect to say a couple of years ago. You know, the, the book on him a couple of years ago was he has the potential maybe to be a frontline starter, maybe a number two in a staff, but can he stay healthy? The, the f- script has flipped entirely. We've seen that he's kind of hit his ceiling in a way. 
I think a lot due to the fact that uh, his stuff has really, uh, I think in a lot of ways, dropped off. Um, his fastball is, of course, nowhere near what it was when it was when he was drafted and really not close to where it was when he was in the minor leagues. Um, and he has not used his off-speed pitches in, uh, very well over the past couple of years to the tune of a 4.79 ERA this past year, a 5.45 ERA the year before, he has not had a season in the major leagues, of course, besides his rookie year in 2012 before he got injured again, uh, where he has had an ERA, ERA below four. So he has not been the guy that they expected him to be. And at this point, we know that we, we talked about it when they made the Jonathan VR trade. These guys that are just oh, slightly above average, average mm-hmm. players, mm-hmm. that's not who Michael Elias is looking to build his team around. He's looking to get great players he's not looking to be a mediocre team that's going to win 85 nine you know maybe top out at 90 wins he wants to win 95 100 games um and so you have to take big swings and the fact that they were able to to flip a guy who over the past two seasons has had an era of about five for four players simply on a quantity basis that's a that's a solid return for him. And keep in mind that Bundy's only a year removed from leading the majors in home runs allowed, um, which was obviously a huge detriment to his scouting report and his value at times. And then he was able to come back this season. I think he had a really good second half in terms of keeping the ball in the yard. Um, I think I saw Steve Molesky mention that he reduced his home run rate to just uh, under one per nine innings. So 0.92 in his last 10 starts throughout the last two months of the season, um, which is which is great because that was, you know, the huge blaring demerit on his like resume was that he was just giving up home runs at an alarming rate. And it was just, I mean, obviously playing in the AL East and, and pitching at Camden Yards, you know, for half your starts, that doesn't really help. But still, I mean, it was just an unbelievable pace that Bundy was giving up home runs, and he was able to kind of calm that down and boost his value back up a little bit. And you're right, the haul is great. I mean, and, and it touches all the boxes that Michael Elias wants. A guy who can make him possibly some kind of impact next, next year, immediately right away, and then three guys who you know, are, are more lower level, single A, double A arms that can build for the future. You know, if you hit on one or two of these guys, this trade becomes, uh, you know, a huge trade because you weren't going to get too much out of Bundy. Now, also Bundy's value relies and he has two more years of control. So that's something else that Michael Lass was able to dangle in front of the angels. Be like, Hey, you guys still have two more years of this guy. Let's get, you know, a four player package deal back in return for him. And I know Orioles fans in general are very scarred by past trades where they have given up, um, you know, guys who have underperformed throughout their career, gone on to a different team, and have had great success elsewhere. And, of course, Jake Arrieta comes to mind. And yeah. I remember this conversation being had when Major Kevin... Stroke. Yeah, and, and I remember this conversation being had when Kevin Gosman was dealt, um, was can't wait for him to go to another team and suddenly become a Cy Young candidate mm. and suddenly have a career resurgence. Well, that hasn't happened so far with Kevin Gossman. Well, it almost did. It almost Remember, did. his first handful of starts with the Braves, he was like lights out. He was great. Like, oh, my gosh, what did the Orioles just give up? And then it went downhill from there right. and uh, eventually was traded again, was non-tendered, and just signed a one-year $9 million contract, which many thought was kind of rich for what he has been over the past couple of years. He's had a 5.72 ERA in his age 28 season last year. We, we kind of know what he is at this point, and – the idea that he could still be an ace 
every every start he has made that has that chance has dwindled. So, and I, I know that fans were invested in Dylan Bundy because he was a, a homegrown player. He was a guy that uh, it was a great story to follow in terms of bouncing back from all his injuries to getting to the major leagues and to making an impact on the major leagues. But at this point, for four full seasons into Dylan Bundy's career, I think we kind of know he's not going to be an ace at this point. Yeah. And if he does, I think you know that would be a, a, a miracle uh, considering the kind of output he has uh, had over the past couple of years. So, you know, I, I know that there's that fear. I know there's uh, that worry that they, you could be giving up a guy who's going to have a career resurgence elsewhere. I don't think it's going to be the case with Dylan Bundy. I, I don't think there's a great chance of that at all. So that's the price you pay, um, both literally and figuratively, when you're going through something like this, like a yeah. rebuild. You know, you've got to part ways with guys who you originally thought were going to be here long term. You know, and it's happened with a handful of guys. For I mean, there's the list is so long at this point that you know I don't want to go through it. But you know, Zach Davies. Oh, well, not even that, but I mean, think, I mean, think about you know the Britons and the Machados, the Scopes, guys yeah. who you know the Orioles drafted and brought up and were so good for so long in that period of time. We talked about a couple episodes ago, you know, the best moments of the decade. How many of those names that we mentioned in those best moments over the past 10 years for the Orioles are no longer here and yeah. were traded away because of this whole process. So it is kind of the price you have to pay. It is it's a bummer, especially for Orioles fans who wanted, who like had, had dreams and envisions of seeing a rotation of led by Gosman, Bundy and Hunter Harvey at some point. Um, and now Hunter Harvey is the only one remaining, and he's a reliever. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it's it's just kind of how it goes. And, um, you know, I, some fans are upset. Some fans get it. Um, um, I just kind of hope that most fans understand, like, this is this is how it goes. This is, I mean, it, it, it is a bummer. It sucks at, at some times. But, you know, let's keep an eye on these four guys. Hey, you got a four for one. So that's pretty good in terms of a trade. Usually, especially trades around this time of year, you, you hardly ever see – that many players coming back for one guy. Yeah. Um, you usually kind of see those deals around the trade deadline when teams get desperate in the offseason. It's more one for one. Okay, maybe we'll throw an extra prospect or a player to be named later. Exactly. So yeah. getting four guys for the one pl- player at this time of year, pretty impressive. Exactly. They're just more chips, more lottery, uh, you know, tickets that yeah. you could p- potentially cash in. And I know another kind of reason that f- some fans might be worried about it is the idea that it makes the current team a little bit worse in the field, which, yeah. it, granted, it does. You know, Brandon Hyde had so few options by the end of the season after they had traded uh, Kashner to throw out there once every five days, and I get that as well. But also, it's probably moderately worse. I mean, you look at a guy that they picked up midseason last year who was not expected to make an impact at all, Wojciechowski, he finished the year after 17, star, uh, 17 games with a 4.92 ERA. That is not far off at all from Bundy's 4.79, mm-hmm. which is not to say that, you know, they, they are going to find another Asher Wojciechowski, who is a fine middle-of-the-rotation starter who can eat up innings for them, but it's not impossible. Yeah. You know, it, it's not impossible for Michael Elias in this front office to dig up somebody who is close to a Dylan Bundy replaceable-level player. So... There's a, you know, they are going to find somebody to fill that rotation. And Dylan Bundy was adding very, very small value to this team. And the value that they got in return was well worth the deal. And I don't mean to devalue what the Orioles are going to be doing next season and the games they're going to be playing or what the, te- what the players on this team 
are going to be trying to accomplish next year. But, you know, what in a, in a season, if it goes the way we expect it to go, you know, hundred another 100-plus losses, probably a top three, if not top two draft pick again, um, cutting into 2021, what's, you know, the three to five wins more that Bundy maybe gets you. Exactly. What, so, I mean, draft position. I mean, it's, it, that's really it all hurts it is. your draft position. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it, in, a, in a season like that, over 162 games, you know, it's not football where you only get 16 of them. You get 162 of them. You know, the three or five wins that Bundy might get you that you might not get otherwise right. doesn't really matter that much. And the big picture – of uh, what they're, uh, Mike Elias and company are trying to accomplish. Exactly. That's a great way to put that. Um, yeah, so the, I, o- overall, uh, I think the value made sense, a lot of sense for that move. All right. Other than that, the Orioles made some deals at winter meetings, in fact. Uh, the two biggest ones being the two Rule 5 draft picks that they selected. Uh, they had the number two overall pick, of course, in the Rule 5 draft. Um, and they went out and they took uh, Brandon Bailey, who's a right-handed pitcher, and then right-handed pitcher Michael Rucker shortly after that. These are two guys that were selected from teams that the Orioles had a lot of ties with, interestingly enough. The Astros, of course, is where Brandon Bailey came from, where Michael Elias came from, mm-hmm. and Michael Rucker is uh, came from the Cubs organization, and that's where uh, Brandon Hyde came from, yep. of course. So they had some ties in there as well. It helps to know, to have an idea of where these guys come from, and remember, Brandon Hyde wasn't just the bench coach in Chicago. He was in charge of the minor leagues as a minor league coordinator for a while uh, there as well. So he he probably knew who this guy was and, and had an opportunity to at least see his stats come across his desk at some point. Yeah, so, right. yeah. he's seen um, his file. Exactly. So we knew that they were going to make at least one pick in the Rule 5 draft. They had two open roster spots, and they filled those two open roster spots with two right-handed pitchers, again, just taking lottery picks at this point. And of course, these guys are much more short term. They, of course, have some long term value, but they mostly have short term value. They will be on the major league team unless they are sold back to their original teams. And the Orioles are just hoping that they can eat up innings, whether it's starting, whether it's in the bullpen for them in 2020. Yeah, I mean, I, this is just piggybacking onto what we've already known. They're just adding a bunch of relievers. And you also mentioned last year, excuse me, last week, before the Rule 5 draft, they also added Marcos Diplon True. from the Tigers, another right-handed reliever, 23 years old, I think only pitched, let's see, he pitched in this, um, the uh, Arizona Fall League this past fall, and then also between two AA affiliates yep. between Milwaukee and Minnesota. So hasn't really hasn't got, gone past AA. Here's a weird question. Is, is it? Interesting at all? Or is, is there anything to the fact that every one of these relief or minor league pitchers that the Orioles are getting back or, or, or signing or claiming whatever it is are all right-handed? Is that a thing? Or I, is, it just, is it just guys that are available? I think it's guys that are available. Yeah. I think teams tend to, especially, so for this example, I think when you look at the Rule 5 draft, I think lefties are incredibly valuable. Yeah. Uh, I think that's... So not many teams are... Making them available for yeah, speed drafting. exactly. Correct. Even with, a, you know, a team, two teams in the Astros and the Cubs that have playoff aspirations, maybe they don't see these guys, you know, making, ever being starters down the line or ever right. making a huge impact. But if guys are lefties, there's probably a better chance that they can come up and be a lap, uh, a, a matchup lefty right. um, at some point down the line. I don't know how the three batter minimum is going to change that. Uh, yeah. But, um, 
I think lefties are more coveted. Of course, there are more righties in general. That's true. Um, but I think that's part of, and that's part of the reason that a John Means is, it, it, you know, is viewed as more, even more valuable than he might be otherwise. Well, I was going to say, like, I mean, and they are mostly relievers, and they're not, yeah. they haven't been starters. And if they were mostly starters or all starters, it would make a little more sense, or I don't know wouldn't raise much of a flag for me that they're all right-handed because, I mean, like you said, mostly right-handed, you know. Yeah. Well, uh, right-handed starters are, are everywhere. Brandon Bailey did start for the Astros for the most majority of okay. the, in their system. Gotcha. So, okay, but I didn't say they're all not starters, but right. I mean, but they're mostly relievers, and you would think for, for relievers, you would might want to space them out a little bit. And that's might not, like, you know, make it a little more 50-50 or 60-40, whatever it may be. Try to add a left-handed arm, too. But you're right. Uh, that means other teams probably covet and value those left-handed arms more and aren't willing to part ways with them or exactly. make them available for the Rule 5 draft, stuff like that. Um, and righties are just more – there's a higher market for, for righties. Exactly. And Rucker, uh, as mentioned, was more of a – has been converted to a reliever um, over the past couple seasons. He did make one start at the AAA level but uh, spent the majority of the season as a reliever coming out of the bullpen for AA. Uh, in 2019. So two guys that, uh, again, will probably just just eat up some innings. Um, and that also creates another question about the Rule 5 draft pick from last year, uh, Richie Martin, and where he will spend the majority of the year. Uh, Michael Elias said when we were at the winter meetings that he is uh, viewed, you know, he, he, considering he played the whole season with the Major League team, he is an, a candidate to start. But something that Elias... Easton Lucas is a lefty. There we go. Nice. Um, something that Elias threw out there, uh, Easton Lucas, of course, being the player that came back for Jonathan. For Jonathan, yeah. Um, that Elias mentioned is that... So they got one. Richie Martin could play second base as well. So, we see, obviously, the eye test, Richie Martin passed at shortstop. Michael Elias said he liked the defense at shortstop. Brandon mm-hmm. Hyde said he liked the defense at shortstop. The... Metrics did not back that up for whatever reason. He did not play above average shortstop at the major league level. The idea of him being converted to second base, especially with Jonathan VR being out, kind of intrigues me. They obviously still have Hanser Alberto who can play all over the field and was pretty solid defensively at third base, at second base, wherever he was used. Um, But the idea that Richie Martin might have a a home potentially at second base, I think is an intriguing one. It is. um, To me, that means... They're, I mean, he was great with the glove, and he's got speed, but does they have the arm strength to consistently play at shortstop? I mean, I feel like some of those deeper plays into towards left field, he wasn't always able to make. Now he made some phenomenal fa- plays. Don't get me wrong, but the arm that might say it, usually when you go from the left side of the infield to the right side of the infield, that probably is a sign of arm strength because you need to get the ball further, you know, or closer, I guess, if you're shifting over to second base to, um, to set to first. So maybe it's a sign of that, but yeah, that is interesting because I, I would think right now, I mean, if it was opening day today, you would probably have to play Richie Martin at short and then Hans would be at second. Cause I don't think Alberto's quick enough to play short right. or, or even have that arm strength to play shortstop. He's I don't think he's ever really played it. Yeah. He's mostly been third or second. And then you would want to put Rio Ruiz at third. At third, yeah. Um, do they think maybe Rio can? Is this like? Do they think maybe Rio can make that shift to short, and then now you have a third base slot for Ryan Mountcastle? 
Or do you sign a veteran middle infielder, slot him in at short? Yeah. Put Rio, put Richie Martin at, at second base. There are going to be some interesting machinations. There. I mean, for, in that instance, it just who who's available, who becomes available. Sure. You know, if it's a true shortstop that becomes becomes available, that solves the problem. But because then you're plugging him at short. Obviously, you can probably keep Hanser at or um, at, at second, or then you can make the full transition for Richie Martin to go f- from short to second right. because you have your mainstay at short already. Uh, if it's a second baseman, you know it's the opposite. You're probably having to keep Richie at short yeah. and then maybe move Hanser to third or use Hanser as a DH, whatever that may be. And, of course, this is assuming that Richie Martin will start the season right. with a major league team. He doesn't team, have which, to. Yeah, he doesn't have to at this point. His Rule 5 status has been uh, filled, so he is just a player that they can option back to AAA. I think a lot of it will depend on how he comes out in spring training, yeah. what, what we see from him, whether he's shown enough to show that he's made improvements that he can stick at the major league club. But, um, you know, the, the, obviously the offensive numbers were not uh, particularly strong from him. He hit just about 200 last year. So he's going to need to show something, I think, in spring training to show that he can be uh, a major league contributor in 2020. Yeah, get those metrics up defensively and obviously the offensive numbers as, as well. That, that's a big one. Exactly. All right. Uh, that wraps up, for the most part, the moves that the Orioles have made mm-hmm. and the moves that they made at winter meetings. But as mentioned, there were other, uh, some other big moves being made at winter meetings around major league baseball. Great to see that the free agent market is heating up and has is back to, I wouldn't say back to 100%, but it's looking a lot healthier than it did at this point oh, last I mean, year. It's, um, it's night and day. It's completely yeah. different. It's been so much more enjoyable to see free agency this year yeah. as opposed to last year or the year before. And as we see all these players now being introduced to their teams, we saw Steven Strasburg being reintroduced in D.C. We saw Anthony Rendon introduced over the weekend in in uh, L.A., quote-unquote, yeah. uh, and, and uh, Garrett Cole being introduced in New York. Kind of, of course, some Orioles fans might feel a little bit of twang of jealousy um, that they are not <laughs> going to be introducing somebody on the stage uh, for a, uh, a free agent signing. But it got me thinking, of course, this team at some point down the line as part of the plan is going to delve back into free agency to fill holes. Um, and I, I wonder when exactly that's going to be. And I think there are two ways to look at it, the chicken or the egg. Do they want to see that the team is competitive enough and has a is already winning before they go out and they sign a, a big-time free agent? Or are they going to bet big the season before they think they're going to take a leap, get a guy who they think can be a veteran presence before they start seeing a winning team on the field and go out and sign a big-time free agent? I think it's going to be more wait and see. I'm not entirely sure I get this analogy you're, you're cooking up, so I'm just going <laughs> to answer... I'm going to take the chicken and egg part and put it aside real quick. Um, I'm going to say they, no, I don't think they're going to jump the gun and, and try to speed up their clock. If it happens naturally, obviously you'll take that. Um, but I don't think they're, they being Michael, I see my dad, Brandon Hyde. I don't think they're in any rush to rush this process. You know, like this, they, they have stressed time and time again. And we, when Michael, Elias told you at the winter meetings, he told the media every day, uh, you know, this takes time. We heard from Sigma Dow too. This is the process. This is how it goes. You know, this is what we did in Houston, and it worked. This is what we're seeing across the league, and it's working. It's going to take time. We've seen examples recently, too, of teams getting, you know, being 
quote unquote rebuilding quicker than expected. See the Yankees a couple years ago, see the Phillies uh, last year, the Braves last year or two years ago, you know, making faster improvements than, than anticipated. I don't think that's a realistic, you know, goal or expectation for this particular instance in Baltimore. Again, would you take it? Yeah, obviously, you know, you want to have a winning product as soon as possible, but I don't think that that is their goal in mind. They've never put a timestamp on this thing. They've been actively trying to avoid that. Um, if it so happens, and, and the other ways, you know, behind the scenes stuff, you know, the, the you know, I don't want to say cutting costs, but being a little more frugal with their money and, and, and where they're spending and how the organization is spending this money, stuff like that just shows that they're willing to take their time and they're in no rush to get this over with. Yeah. They want to do it right as opposed to quickly. I think I, I tend to lean that way as well. Um, and, and so to, to, to wrap it up in terms of the free agency question, no, I don't think they're going to try to sign a big-name free agent this offseason or even next offseason, I don't think, if I'm looking into my crystal ball, because, again, I think they're taking time and they're not going to spend big on a guy who will help them win for a handful of years in seasons that they might not be that right. competitive. Yeah, because I don't think it's a, a matter of just a year. I don't think they have in mind, you know, 2021 is the offseason that we go in or whatever. I think it's a they probably have to hit a certain barometer or they have to hit a certain mark before they decide, okay, we are good enough now to win right now. Right. So, you know, whether it's if in, it's, let's say in 2021, they win 85 games. You know, is that enough to convince them that, okay, we're ready to next year win 90 plus? We're ready to break through. We have enough talent right there. These guys are going to take a big step up in, the, in whatever year they're entering. Or, you know, are they going to try, you know, jump the gun? And I, I think that the logic that they have said is that they're going to wait. Uh, you know, when they're get presented those two options, um, you think of in terms of moves that have been made in by prior teams in terms of rebuilding. Um, you know, you think of a Jason Worth signing with the Washington Nationals in 2011 before that team was any good. You know, before they they could see it in the future, but they had not seen it yet on the field. They had not seen a winning team. You think of Philadelphia signing Carlos Santana. Uh, they had lost 96 games the year before, so they were still about a hundred lost team but they said they could see it in the future. Um, and they thought, let's get a veteran guy who can mentor these guys as they're coming up, and we think we can win now. We're taking a guess on that as opposed to, all right, we've seen some winning baseball. We've seen the results on the field. Now let's go in. Yeah, and I, 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 but I think, and I agree, but I think those situations are, are different to this one in, in an instance where, especially with the Jason Worth one, like the Nationals already had Steven Strasburg as an established Major League starter. They had Bryce Harper waiting in the wing, and they knew he was going to break through the next season. It, like you said, they could see in the future. The writing was on the wall for the for the Nationals in 2011 to be good in 2012. Right. There's no writing on the wall for the Orioles to be good in 2021. You know, it, it's they, they could be, but we don't know. There's no, right. you know, they have, yes, a number one overall draft pick in the system. It's a catcher. It's not really like a, a frontline starting pitcher like Strasburg was, or you know the the biggest phenom like Harper was. But you know it, he's a, a great guy, a number one overall draft pick, a guy that who's going to be a part of this, you know, rebuild moving forward. He'll be one of the main keystones. But he's not major league ready. He's not going to be up. You know, he might break through in twenty twenty one. That doesn't mean he's going to be ready to carry this team to a playoff run. Um, I think Michael Eyes 
wants this. You know, they're not going to go chasing free agents. They're not going to just because fans want, you know, a, you know, fans are clamoring. Give us a reason to watch. Give us a, you know, well, y- you have your reason. It's to come see these young guys that we already have that we're, we're, we're drafting and, and, and signing or trading for and, and trying to develop. Um, but we're not going to just go sign a, a big name free agent just to, to appease the masses. You know, we're just we're not going to do it. What they want to do is make this a destination where free agency wants to come. They're not going to go chasing. You know what I'm saying? Like they don't want to go chase guys down. I feel like they don't want to go chase free agent, big name free agency, down, free agents down just for the sake of doing it. They want to make this a destination that's worth coming to see Nelson Cruz when he came here in 2014. You know, it was a destination because you had a good core of. Uh, Matt Wieters, uh, um, Adam Jones, J.J. Hardy, and then also great young players in Manny Machado and Jonathan Scope. It was a, a desirable location. That's what they're trying to get to on their own terms in, in terms of building up their young prospects and developing their own guys. That way in three, four, again, not putting a timestamp on it, but however many years it takes, Baltimore, the Orioles become a, a, a place where guys want to come to try to win. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and and I think that uh, and that's not going to happen overnight or next season or, or the years after. It, it could, but right. that's not their goal. Yeah. Well, my question is, when is it going to happen? You know, what what I would point, say, give it a couple more seasons. Right. At, at what point are they going to to delve into this free agency? Because I, I I don't think you know I think it's absolutely fair to to not do it this season. But how many wins? How much success do they need to see on the field before they say, all right, now is the time? Um, for us to dip our toe in the water. Um, I think of Houston signing Carlos Beltran right before the 2017 season. You know, they had just won 83 games and 93 the year before that, and they were a little bit slower to sign big-time free agents. Um, and they finally saw the success on the field before they went out and and signed those free agents. So it's it's a question that we'll have to ponder over the next couple of years, and we'll have plenty of time to think about it. And I think it's one of those things where – you know, we'll know it when we see it. Yeah, we'll know yeah. a we'll know a winning team that has the potential to be a winning team for years to come. You know, it's it's not going to if this you know current team goes out and uh, you know has a great month of April and May and they you know finish April and May above five hundred. That's not going to be you know that we know that that's eventually not going to to last. We need to they need to see a sustained amount of winning, I think, over the course of an entire season, maybe a season and a half before they say, now we know we have the core in place. Let's go out and make other improvements to the current team. Uh, just uh, if you want to compare 20, 2008, 2009, the Nationals lost over 100 games each of those seasons. Those obviously resulted in their two number one overall draft picks in mm-hmm. Strasburg and Bryce Harper. Um, 2010, the season before they right. signed Jason Worth, they were 69 and 93. Nice. Then the year after Jason Worth's first year in DC, they were right. just under 500, 80 and 81. I guess a game got canceled or something. And then 2012 right. was when they won 98 games in the NLE. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, it, signing that big free agency does help. You know, I'm Jason Worth probably had a phenomenal year in 2011. That's brought that record closer to 500. Let's get under 100 games first. Right, make it, and then you then you can kind of see the writing on the wall. Okay, you know they yeah. lost a hundred, was it one hundred fifteen, then one hundred and seven, whatever it may be this year. All right, now they're kind of under yeah. hundred. They're 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 progressing up, trending upward. That's when you maybe make the big splash, and then you kind of get closer to five hundred, and then it flips. Right, exactly. That would be the ideal timeline, probably. Yeah, and you you mentioned. You know, so that's uh, a one, two, three, four. That's a five-year timeline. Yeah, and between, you uh, 
08 and 12. And you mentioned the Baltimore, them wanting to become a free agent destination. The Nationals didn't wait for that to happen. You know, they, That's and, true. But they had to pay the price for it. Right. They had to probably overpay Jason Worth, $126 million, yeah. which was if they had maybe waited a year and, you know, and then signed somebody of his caliber, yeah. maybe they might have gotten him cheaper just because that free agent would have looked at him and said, looked at the roster and said, all right, I can see a winning team here. You guys won, I don't know, 80 games that year, you know, the year before, as opposed to you, you know, won 69. So, you know, I can see a winning team. You guys are more a destination than you would be in a year. Right. There's a, there's a lot goes into it because it's so many te- so many people around the Nationals credit Jason Worth for the Nationals' string of success from, let's see, let's even say right. 2011 until now, obviously making, winning a World Series because he made them a destination. You know, exactly. He, he also, also his sign, signing showed ownership's, commitment to winning and, and wanting to win um, and not shying away from what you have to do to win. Yes, draft and develop as much as you can, but it also is going to take, you know, a free agent here and there to, to put the full team together and, and a competitive team out there. Exactly. So the Orioles are not big players in this free agency, but they could be in a few years down the line. We shall see. Uh, there is still plenty of offseason left. We will not be here next week because – it is the holidays. It is Christmas, as evidenced by the sweater. Um, so festive. So festive, indeed. This is the most Christmassy sweater that I own. Um, I will not say it's an ugly sweater because I got it as a gift. So, All right. Yeah. I, I was going to say it's ugly either. Thank you, Bobby. I think they're a little more... You can tell an ugly sweater. Yeah. Like, yeah. Ex- exactly. I don't, unless you're Kermit the Frog in that... Uh, yeah, it's Kermit. an ugly sweater. <laughs> Gonzo. Huh? Uh, but, yeah, not an ugly sweater. Exactly. So... Uh, we will see you in a couple weeks right after the new year. Maybe there will be some moves that we will be talking about then. He's Bobby Blanco at Bobby underscore Blanco on Twitter. I'm at Paul Mancano. You can, of course, listen to the Mass and All Access podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play. Watch it on YouTube. Watch it on Facebook. We will be back in a couple weeks. The Mass and All Access podcast, of course, is brought to you by Marymount University. Visit MarymountSaints.com to learn more about our student athletes and programs today. I'm Paul. He's Bobby. We'll see you later.